Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine, LD at Large. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I am back today. Uh, I've taken a short break for the American election. I just didn't want to be putting out any podcasts while the, the media was insane. So I am back to it now. I'm very excited to be back uh, with a new friend of mine. Her name is Allie Pike. She is the production and lighting designer, and uh, she is also a programmer and operator. She is out of the UK currently, but she's also based in Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you so much for joining with me today. I appreciate it. No worries. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, you are my you're my first guest back. I took a short break because the the media is just insane these days. It's so overwhelming. I really have to just turn off the the news sometimes. I, I miss the days of like the six o'clock and the eleven o'clock news, and that was it. Like you had the newspaper, and then you had the six o'clock news and the eleven o'clock news. And if you missed those, you probably didn't know what was going on. But now it's just twenty four seven. Like there's it always is. news available. There's always something. There's always something terrible happening near you. There's something even more terrible happening farther away. And uh, that's what we used to do was go to go to concerts and gather and and commiserate and feel a sense of love and uh, and connection. And now even that's been taken away from us. So. It's yeah, it's a constant. It feels like a constant barrage, and I think it's it's very difficult, but also very important to try and get a balance between keeping yourself informed and whatever that means to you, but without it being massively detrimental to your mental health, which is a real danger. I think um, just that constant flow of information coming at you, and let's face it, a majority of it is doom and gloom currently. I mean, that's what makes the news. There will never be something out there like. Allie Pike had a perfectly wonderful day today. <laughs> Story. Uh, Allie Pike made perfectly good decisions today. That, <laughs> that never makes the news. It's de- you're definitely not going to be headline news with, with something boring like that. Like uh, Allie Pike learned how to do a new skill today. Isn't that great for her? You know? <laughs> I think um, it, there's also a sort of troubling element. It's become a little bit of a joke in our, in our house in a dark kind of way that you, you wake up in the morning and you look at your phone and you're like, right, what shit's gone down now? You know, <laughs> you're sort of bracing yourself for, for what you're going to wake up to every day, I think, which, uh, yeah, can't be a healthy way of being. No. And unfortunately, like our phones are alarm clock. There are sleep monitors. They're a little bit of everything. So as soon as you wake up, you're like, well, I got to turn off my alarm. And then it's just it's two, there, two yeah. tickles away from ending into your uh, news feed. And then you're just, and then there you go. Often, often running as a, as a terrible day. Maybe that's what we, the world needs for 2020 is uh, old school alarm clocks. There you go. There's a good side 
uh, business hustle to bring back old school alarm clocks where you just you wind them so no batteries no power no connection to anything just a little bell on the top maybe that is what the world needs right now you might be onto something there chris make alarm clocks great again yeah that's it that's... <laughs> yeah exactly yeah bring them back <laughs> so i wanted to reach out to you because you have a, a unique perspective you were able to you were in the united states at the beginning and then you decided to travel back to the UK after you started to see how long this might take. Well, it was something along those lines. We, my other half, Dan and I, are incredibly fortunate in that uh, we both have US work visas and we, we do spend a lot of our working lives in America normally. Um, and we have a, a base there in, in Scottsdale, Arizona, but we also have a base in Liverpool. Um, I'd actually been on tour uh, in the UK just before this and in Europe just before this sort of started uh, but Dan had gone over to LA because he had uh, work lined up which actually got cancelled when he was in the air so he landed into LAX to be told actually all your shows are cancelled and you know when things were sort of brewing early on uh, which is hard to think back to now of that mentality of like ah, is this really a big deal this is just going to be a couple of months it's so weird to, to think now that that was the the idea in our heads but of course it was as they love to say it was so unprecedented that there was no reason why we didn't think it would just be a couple of months but we had the conversation reasonably early on of going oh okay well if we're not going to be working for a few months do we want to do that in Arizona do we want to do that in Liverpool um, and as I was saying Dan had landed into LA and even back in sort of March time he felt that there was a bit of a strange vibe on the street. He was just going out for breakfast and like his favorite breakfast spot was suddenly closed. And he said it just all felt a bit weird. And we had to make a very quick decision really as to do we just get him on a plane and get him home? Do we get me on a plane and get me out to Arizona? And initially we kind of went, oh, well, if we're not going to be working, it'd be great to have the outdoors. It'd be great to, you know, have that lifestyle there rather than, you know, still winter in the UK. Um but we decided for various reasons that the UK was uh, the way to go. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty happy that that was the decision we made, actually. I miss Arizona. I miss my friends there and my other friends in America and, well, all over the world, of course. Um, but, but it was definitely the right decision for us was to stay in Liverpool. Good for you. That is a, that is a very tough decision. I would imagine you have a, an apartment or a house in Scottsdale. Yeah, we have a condo there. Um, you know, it's it's nothing crazy fancy but I, I love it dearly uh I have a swing on my porch and it's just my favorite place um so it has been you know has some pretty bad moments of just going oh why are we here we don't you know but there's just so many practical reasons for making that decision and we know well we hope that it's still going to be there uh for us when we can go back um so yeah it's it makes me sad not to be there and every now and again we'll go where is this random item? And we'll go, oh yeah, yeah, it's in, it's in Arizona. Great. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a tough trip to go and go and get it. Go and fetch some stuff. Yeah. And I'm, I'm totally out of uh, Arizona gunslinger, which is like my favorite hot sauce. So that's a real bummer. I could really do with some of that. Oh, that's a tough one. That's tough to come by. <laughs> oh, no, not where we live. It's not, but well here it is. That's a, that's a, uh, that's a tough import. I would imagine. Yeah, then they're not shipping to the UK. <laughs> so one of the things that must have been a huge factor in your decision making was that you are in the US on a visa, which is very specific. And there are many rules that come attached to your visa. Can you speak about a little bit about to 
what you're not allowed to do in the United States on a visa? Of course. Um, we've both been quite fortunate in that because of the amount of work we've done previously, uh, we both hold O1 visas, which means that um, whilst we are tied to working in the sort of live music industry, the events industry, um, we are not tied specifically to one act or one company or one band. So in that sense, it's given us a broader scope of, of um, potential work. However, when all of that supposed broad scope of potential work is gone, uh, that makes our visas pretty much worthless. Um, one thing I researched into last time we were in Arizona back in January um, was volunteering on a visa um, and I discovered that that's something that you, you're entitled to do as long as you're not getting any sort of monetary or other gains such as accommodation etc from volunteering uh, you are actually allowed to volunteer on your visa so that was something that I knew I was able to do over there but the main difference for us is that obviously being in the UK we can take on other work um, just completely different things totally outside of our, our normal jobs uh, whereas in the US we can't do that so we can't get paid to dog walk we can't um you know all these other sort of any side hustles basically as i describe them that we can do here we we're not legally allowed to do in the u.s oh man that's like a triple whammy for you because not only is your visa basically useless you can't go outside the entertainment industry and it's not like one of you was outside the entertainment industry you were both in the in the industry so yeah it's not like one could rely on the other to go find something you were both in the exact same boat exactly and we are in the uk as well um so on the plus side we're very much in it together we keep on top of developments in terms of uh, support grants and things that change like that but we are both entirely in the same situation which whilst it uh, financially <laughs> sucks i think that mentally it's possibly actually quite a good thing there's no element for any like animosity of sort of like one person going, well, I've still got to go to work every day. You don't do anything all day. Yeah, there's no element of that because we're both screwed. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you can both feel, you can commiserate in the, uh, in the suffering there. That's exactly, exactly. And, you know, we sort of joke about it, but I imagine for a lot of people and uh, people in our industry who are now finding themselves just feeling you know that that feeling of uselessness and worthlessness that i think we all experience be it constant or be it intermittently i think that must be really hard to then have a partner um who is still working all the normal hours and stuff and to balance those sort of feelings i, I think that must be incredibly difficult yeah it, uh you actually touched on something that came up recently i had uh so i live in this little small town in canada and a lot of the people that i work with or that I live nearby there, I'm kind of the outcast in the fact that I travel for work and I'm in the entertainment industry. We're kind of, people are very interested in what we do until it comes times that we're out of work and they're like, Oh, well maybe you should have found like a real job. Like, no, I had a real job. Like, yeah, but don't you have like a, like an arts degree? Yes. I have an arts degree and I was doing quite well for myself. And then people still don't, they look at us like, Oh, well, you know, good on you for living your dream, but you know, current, you can yeah. only live well, you now just get a real job. And I'm like, well, I've trained for 20 years or so <laughs> to get to where I got doing my job. What am I supposed to just like go back to university and start again? I did a, I don't, I don't know if your government have done a similar thing. There was 
it was just became a joke circulating for quite a while uh, the government website had a thing of like, well, you know, answer some multiple choice tick questions and we'll suggest a new career for you to train into. Do you want to know what I got? I do. <laughs> my UK government, however, basically said my job is unviable, uh, suggested that I retrain as a set designer. <laughs> oh, my God. So that would literally be doing the same degree again that I already have. <laughs> Um, and that seems to be a pretty much a constant um, amongst, uh, you know, UK colleagues and so forth. Everyone was doing this survey and just laughing at it because, you know, that's the level of uh, practical assistance we're getting from our, our government here. That is uh, frustrating, at least insulting at most. Yes, it is both of those things and kind of hilarious at the same time, you know. Oh, I look forward to your pro prolific career as a set designer. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Once I, once I finish retraining and spend another 20 years to get to the same point of, oh yeah, that, doing the same thing. <laughs> uh, that's actually even slightly dystopian in the fact that it's like the Ministry of Occupation has dis has decided that you're a set designer. Yeah, yeah it really, really is. Yep. <laughs> Very strange. I saw some of the posters of, I think it was like, maybe Julie's next job is in tech and she just doesn't know about it yet. I, yeah. <laughs> that, I felt that in my stomach. I was like, that is the most insulting thing I've ever seen. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, that's propaganda right there. That's just, it, it was a pretty impressive shit storm here. That, yeah, that was a good one. Wow. Yeah, to to just come to somebody like, hey, you know, you were doing quite well. We had to shut everything down. Uh, instead of us helping you out, why don't you just go get a shitty job that you're not trained for? And, you know, man, that's a tough one. We're now at a point here where there isn't even any, you know, as you say, shitty jobs there. So I've discovered it's been really eye-opening. I've been in incredibly fortunate to work in the same job pretty much all of my career and now to suddenly find myself in this world of uh searching job websites and applying for minimum wage jobs and then working out like how would I even live off the kind of money you know unless you're looking at a 40 hour a week contract on something which doesn't really seem to exist in any of the jobs and, and then I guess complacently I, I always had this idea in my head that a minimum wage job was minimum wage because it was entry level um, and that is utter, it, it's, it's a total illusion. Um, I see jobs advertised that are minimum wage and they say, oh, but you need three years experience. It's just, it has been really eye-opening actually to sort of venture into that world. And I realize how fortunate I have been my whole career to, to not be in that position. You know, I've, I've worked, don't get me wrong, I've worked jobs in venues and stuff and, and not, you know probably being paid minimum wage but i don't know it's just it, it feels very different somehow it's, it's weird yeah when when we choose to work the 20 hours that just extends us out to minimum wage that's our choice <laughs> yeah forced. exactly or you're yeah. paid minimum wage but you work a 20 hour shift so you're like you still feel like you're coming home with money in your pocket but if you're looking at a minimum wage job where it's maybe eight hours but you don't get a paid lunch break and your travel time's not paid and it's like well, why why am i going you know it's it is it's but you know i know that yeah. millions of people do and i don't know it's a tough one 
being paid minimum wage to do something that I enjoy doing is far more tolerable than getting paid minimum wage to do something I don't want to be doing. There you go. Absolutely that. Yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, you and I both know what it's like to be on tour and you know that, you know, if you add it out, that eventually you have to look at the math and you're like, I'm getting paid like $10 an hour. There's no way around that. I, <laughs> you know, you know, the, the times that we spend in the hotel rooms and, and away from family and Oh yeah, we basically work 24 hours a day because you're always kind of around your bosses or you're always like to some level you're always a little bit aware that you're in a work environment. Yeah, so yeah. you do. Yeah. <sighs> so let's get into that a little bit. What brought you into lighting slash theater and, and why aren't you a set designer? Did you not need <laughs> to be a set designer? I mean... I sort of considered the placement of risers and occasionally set pieces <laughs> and um, done some backdrops and drapes. Does that count? Am I yes. really qualified for my yes. new job? Yes. <laughs> um, I think I was sort of drawn to lighting. Um, I, I studied at school and then at college. I was sort of very into drama societies and uh, theatre studies and I did music related things. Uh, my mum is a music teacher. So that was kind of the world that I, I grew up in. And I understood you know, it's just something that's sort of innately, I guess, inside me. I don't really think about it. It's just there's always been music in my life. Um, and I got interested in college and uh, doing theatre stuff and then got to that, you know, I was sort of 16. I was like, I don't want to be on the stage. People are looking at me um, and realised that I could stand at the desk and go, oh, this makes the red lights go. This makes the white lights go. And then I was like, well, this is quite fun. Um, and then I got a job at infamous... Uh, club uh, rock city in nottingham uh and i worked there for about two years or so i think i used to work on the flyering and promotions team so we would take the posters and the flyers around to sort of local shops local businesses we would go out on thursday friday saturday nights into the city and we'd be handing out the you know one pound entry flyers i would finish work about midnight and um get back into the club and start drinking because you know I've worked with all my friends and I love my job um and I got talking to the guy who used to sit and just bash the buttons for the club night and I was like that looks amazing can I do that and he was just like yeah of course and he'd be off to the bar with his mates and then I'd just sit on the, the classic Avo Pearl not really understanding why these buttons necessarily did what they did but I like I knew if I pressed this one I could turn the whole room red and I know if I pressed this one I could make it all strobe and I just thought it was the most amazing thing. And uh, that was it, really. I had a bug for it. And um, until March, never really stopped doing it. There's just something about hitting a button that makes something else happen and farther away. The, the farther away that is the, the action takes place from the button push, the more excited we get. There's just something hardwired in our brain that just, I push this and that happens. Let's do that. Uh I think the nightclub thing as well is because it's so you're immersed in the middle of it and you can have such a massive influence on the way that the whole room feels um, just by turning everything red or turning everything orange or, or hitting strobes at the right point because you know all the classic rock songs that they're playing on a Saturday night, you know, and to suddenly have that feeling of like, wow, I'm a real kind of part of this, this whole room and everyone in it. And yeah, it's, there's something really magical about that. Um, I still quite enjoy occasionally I'll be on tour and it will go into a club night afterwards and I'm there probably supposed to be packing up front of house and I'm like, I'm just going to bash some buttons in the club for a little bit because it's fun, you know, I still enjoy doing it and just that utter freedom of kind of 
just going as nuts as you want and not having to think, oh, can you see your guitar strings or, you know, I've got a cue here or a cue here. Sometimes it's fun to just bash buttons. <laughs> yeah. When you go out on tour, do you still punt your shows or do you, do you time code? Do you, or do you usually uh, do at least a cue list? Um, it is very much dependent on what the show is. Um, like that classic question of what, what's your favorite desk or what's your favorite lights and stuff. Uh, my preferred method of running a show is entirely dependent on what the, who the band are, um, how the show flows, uh, the job, you know, just the requirements of each specific job. Um, Kylie is a very time coded show, but we make sure that we have immediate access to things we might need to change um so key light will be initiated um via time code from the stack but it's on a fader that i instantly have at my fingertips and so i can adjust things as and when needed it's not so tightly locked in that i then it just sort of runs without me being able to to influence it um on a total contrast to that the frank turner show uh, it's so fast-paced and constantly varying. The songs themselves don't really change, but the way in which they want to segue night by night from song into song, and it really does just go bang, 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 back-to-back songs, and it's not always going to be the same four songs that are in that section, um, has sort of led me to a system with that where I have a very intricate busk page, I guess, for lack of a better term, okay. um, for each song. And that's enabled me to be able to go very quickly from uh, to change worlds, I guess, very quickly, depending on the set. And then I've done other shows that are I'm running entirely, uh, but everything's very cue stacked. You know, I, I'm I'm very comfortable very working dynamic. different ways. Yeah, exactly. It just depends on what the show demands, really. Right on. Uh, one of the things you said is that your mom was in the industry as well. Did she kind of encourage you <laughs> down this path? Well, I'm not sure she'd say that she was in the industry. Uh, she might like to hear that. Um, she's uh, a music teacher, was her profession. Um, so she okay. worked She worked in my primary school when I went to, you know, I, I don't know what you call that in North America. What's primary school? It's probably the same thing. Okay, so like yeah. 5 to 11. Uh, she taught in my school. Uh, she's always done sort of private music lessons uh, at home. So we had piano pupils in and out of the house when we were kids um she's still very much involved in local sort of community uh, bands and by bands i mean like brass band saxophone kind of orchestral more bands um she's part of a which oh, is going to kill me i'm going to say renaissance recorder group but i think it's way more like period specific than that something along those lines um and also it's like some choirs church choir she plays organ in a church you get the idea. She's her whole life has been very uh, music orientated. That's so refreshing to hear. I would imagine you didn't have to explain to your parents, or your mom, especially you only. Well, so this is a thing that I'm into. <laughs> well, you'd think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> but um, I don't know. I think possibly until I got the Kylie job, my parents were still a little bit like, "You're going to get a real job eventually." Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there was there was still definitely an element of that. I think it's one thing to sort of you know she's much more classical music orientated. It's one thing to sort of you know play play the viola and teach classical piano compared to I'm going to go and live in a van <laughs> and, <laughs> and do shows in dirty nightclubs. It's a little bit different, but um, they've they've pretty much got used to the idea now. 
that's uh, I, I think that's a, a barrier that a lot of people have to get through. Like, well, you, now I have to, for lack of a better term, you have to like come out to your parents. Like, okay, so this is what I've decided to do. And they just kind of look at you like, uh, that's, you're never going to be able to survive on that. And you're like, yes, I can. I, I promise I can. Yeah. I mean, I, I think probably also the point at which we bought a house in America, they definitely went, oh, okay. And this seems financially viable. <laughs> so, so what led to that decision? What, what made you decide like, okay, now it's time to move to the U.S. and start doing some U.S. tours? We were both finding ourselves uh, just working more and more in the US. Um, I think it was something we'd always talked about and we'd always kind of said, you know, I don't want to live in the UK my whole life. We want to. And I, I was a, I've always said I didn't want to be those people that are just like, oh, yeah, I want to live abroad one day and then never do it. So I was so determined um, to pursue that and to make it work. Um Scottsdale as well Arizona wasn't a spontaneous decision people always look at us a bit nuts when we go oh yeah no we bought a place in Arizona and they're just like really um we spent maybe about three years between us I was working with LCD sound system at the time so I was spending a lot of time in the US um and basically anytime I had a, a week off or something between tours, I would go on Airbnb in a different town, in a different state, you know, maybe somewhere that was like literally a halfway hop or, you know, stop over nice. to wherever the next show was. So I was incredibly lucky to have that opportunity. You know, it wasn't worth coming back to the UK. Um, so we sort of, we looked at some places in Florida, um, like St. Petersburg. I decided Florida is way too sticky for habitation. and just no um very nice little neighborhood though i liked that um we kind of contemplated nevada for a little while dan was quite into that um and then i'd actually i'd ended up in scottsdale kind of by accident one time um i was supposed to be going to vegas um just on sort of a little road trip and whatnot um and i landed into vegas the morning of the the shooting at the festival and obviously Vegas was entirely in lockdown and I went oh okay well I'm not staying here for a week um now what and I decided to get a one-way rental and went okay where can I drive to um that's fun over the next four or five days and I went oh I'm going down to Phoenix that seems fun and so I just spontaneously got the car left Vegas and uh, went on a road trip and uh, yeah found myself in old town Scottsdale a few days later and went what is this place this is nuts um and I never really thought that much of it until Dan found himself there. I think he had a day off on tour and he messaged me and went, have you been here? And I went, yeah, it's amazing. And he's like, why aren't we living here? And I went, oh, I didn't think you'd like it. <laughs> and um, that was how it kind of started. And then um, we probably spent another year or so between us. Whenever we had time off, we got an, rented an Airbnb and we kept going back to Scottsdale. And we kind of went, maybe the novelty will wear off of, hiking through cacti and being in the desert and it it really never wore off and so we bought a condo how serendipitous <laughs> it wasn't a totally crazy spontaneous decision it was it was pretty well considered and you know tested before we actually did it it still felt at the time to go wow we're actually buying a place in the u.s it still felt like you know it was a big thing but it wasn't a sort of yeah a spontaneous decision no i mean in our industry all you really need is to live near a major airport and you can pretty much anywhere in the u.s and you're good to go yeah. I mean, the less connections you have the the less frustrating you'll be to your production manager 
but other than that as long as you're near and you're Phoenix Airport is quite the hub. So yeah. we are 18 minutes drive from Mars to the airport. So yeah, it definitely take that box. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I would imagine the weather works out for you. It's a, the polar opposite of what I imagine Liverpool to be. Yes, pretty much. It, it works out. I'd say about 80% of the year. I love the heat. Um, but even I find July and August, uh, it's a little bit much, but I love the thunderstorms, um, in August though. So that's kind of, balance for me i guess is that yeah you put it with the horrific heat and you do actually it does get humid but then you get to sit out in a, in a pub garden in the evenings still sweating but watching these unbelievable thunderstorms rolling in and you get to a point where you know when to time it perfectly to like drink up and you're like okay we gotta go now before it just goes and you get drenched so mm-hmm. i love that side of it as well when you moved to the phoenix area did you feel like you had to start all over again or was it, did you move there because you were getting more work in the United States? Um, we were already just getting so much work in the U S um, and we're so used to, I don't know, well, living out of a suitcase really that no, it, it just felt like a very natural progression, I think. And as I say, because we've been we've basically been living out of other people's Airbnbs for so long doing that that it felt just very natural that it almost feels like we're just constantly going back to the same airbnb you know but not paying anyone else the rent now which is great um it took a little while actually before i started because i was i was still touring a lot um after we bought it i sort of we bought it and then i had eight days to turn it around and like furnish it and deal with stuff on the ground before I went back on tour um so it was then another couple of months before I actually went home and lived in it properly when you moved to Phoenix did you have to completely let all your clients know and all your bands know like hey so I'm in I'm Phoenix based now so please fly me out of here and I would imagine you had to make all new connections is that is that something that happened that is what I was saying yeah it actually took a little while um because I still I already had work lined up and um touring stuff happening before I decided to start building new contacts uh, within the Phoenix area. And it was actually really only when we were back there last sort of, we were there November to January that I started reaching out to people, you know, including yourself. We just, we made the decision to go to NAM because we wanted to build on our US contact base. Um, I spoke to people in local rental houses. I spoke to people um, in local venues and I was just starting to kind of get on the whole hey, can we go for a coffee? Can we meet up? I'm going to swing around and see the place kind of thing. I was just starting that process going um, when lockdown happened. So that's been really tough in that, yeah, I had started to, I guess, not build a new life or rebuild my life as such because it's still our industry and we're international. Um, But yeah, I've had to sort of put that side of things on hold, which is really frustrating. That was so much momentum you had going. I, I would imagine that's true for so many people. I mean, especially the the students that were just graduating. They just had all this momentum to go into yeah. a wonderful field full of opportunity. And, and it's it, gone. Yeah. It's hard for us to realize that when we have lived in a town for so long, the, just the, the local network that we create. And so even when you're not currently out on the road on a tour and you back home for even if it's like you know two weeks you can always pick up a random conference or a expo or something absolutely so yeah i guess i just started 
yeah to kind of try and build up for myself there and uh, yeah that's all kind of very much ground to a halt but you know we're, we're fortunate in that we've had lengthy careers I don't want to be like well you know we had a good innings like kind of thing um because I, I do truly believe we will go back to, to touring um yeah. but yeah I do I really really feel for people who are now just fresh out of uni or just very very early days in their career and just like how can you even begin to contemplate like riding this out um when you haven't had that that base and that work already it must just be incredibly hard so uh what have you been doing since march have you worked a day since march um i have i can answer this question twofold um so in terms of what i would describe as my normal job um i flashing lights for bands i have done uh one live stream with frank turner and the sleeping souls which we did from a bus depot in oxford um, which is a paid live stream event that was really fun um i have done one filming event that's not out yet so i'm not going to talk about it um i have done one actual real live world gig um where we played at the virgin money uh, socially distanced arena or whatever it was called up in Newcastle. So that was with okay. Frank. That was with Frank uh, and Matt, our keyboard player. They did it as a duo, but that was that is the only one I've done that was actually real people on a real stage. Oh, I think that's been it. I don't think I've missed anything there. I think that really was it. Real people on a real stage. That sounds. It's just good to hear that that even yeah. exists. Honestly, that moment of just like. So we drove up from Liverpool and just like getting out the car in a backstage muddy compound and looking at the back of a stage was just, it was a real moment. It was, uh, yeah, it was quite strange and felt very comforting more than it felt alien because of, you know, COVID precautions and stuff. It just felt very comforting. Um, so that was part one of that answer. Um, that's been hit for industry work. What I have spent most of my time doing is um, walking dogs, which is basically the best job in the world. Um, it is. It sounds <laughs> And whilst I massively appreciate of the tiny little bit of extra money coming in, um, it does not pay the bills. <laughs> However, uh, what it lacks in sort of financial stability uh, it offers me so much more in terms of looking after my physical health because I go out and walk every single day. I leave the house, which is an achievement, I think. Um, and just my mental well-being when you've got a four-year-old Labrador wagging her tail and jumping at you because she's desperate for a ball and just constantly smiling and happy. It's pretty hard to be miserable. So, yeah, that's been a yeah. <laughs> the dogs of the world are the are the greatest benefactors of COVID nineteen for sure. The dogs are like all these people staying at home, <laughs> hanging out there. You know, my dog hasn't seen me this much in in years. So yeah, I I feel for some of the lockdown puppies who are then going to get a bit of a shock to the system when people do go back to work and stuff. But I think right now, yeah, dogs of the world are just like, all right, yeah, cool, yeah, 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 let's go. I don't know why you're home, but I like it. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so that's walking that's a handful of clients, just one client. Um, I have two, uh, and I think I could have. Congratulations. Pushed, I know, right? I could have pushed more. Um, 
But equally, I think, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to get to a point where it just becomes so stressful for me. And also, you know, I want to be able to offer a really good service to the clients that I do have in terms of flexibility. And it's gone from like the Labrador, I was booked to walk twice a week and I bought, I now walk in seven days a week, which is what I'm going to go do after this. Apparently it's ice cream day. Her daddy's messaged and said she can have ice cream today. So that's very exciting. So that, yeah, that's become a daily thing. And then I have another dog called Lenny who has like, really bad separation anxiety uh and I just kind of go hang with him and we watch tv and it's really nice <laughs> so yeah I think I, I just I don't know I think to turn dog walking into a financially like viable business it then becomes less personal I think um and you become more of a like well I'm going to pick your dog dog up at exactly two o'clock and I have to return them at three o'clock and we have to do this and this whereas having Ronnie the way that I do sometimes I just say Oh, uh, I'll pick her up at 10. We'll be back at four. And we just go out into the countryside and we go exploring and we just have a nice time. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to over corporatize dog walking. Exactly. It's yeah. That's like, that's my, that's my unique selling point on the dog walking. <laughs> you get, you're like the, the VIP concierge of dog walking. Like, no, there's no, yeah, they no get a couple ones, one-to-one attention, you know, all their needs are listened to and stuff and they get ice cream days. <laughs> yeah no it's it's been it's been really really good and you know but not easy even to get to that point um as we sort of discussed i i I was volunteering at a dog shelter in arizona which i missed dearly and i still keep in touch with them um and i've volunteered uh in the uk i was fostering uh, rabbits and hamsters um at the start of lockdown as well um so it's sort of been a whole sequence of events throughout lockdown that's got me to the point where i am now um so that's been really interesting to then see that you know actually things do develop and progress and how one thing leads on to another thing and yeah but it wasn't it wasn't instant and it wasn't easy to to get people to trust me to walk their dogs to start with it's like everything you got you got to put the time in and put the work in to make stuff happen yeah that's a great way to spend our time just uh spending time with animals is so soothing they have far less concerns than we do they don't know about COVID 19 they don't know about the american election they don't know about no. that, nor do they care no neither of them have ever brought it up it's brilliant <laughs> no they don't even they wouldn't even know to talk to it they wouldn't even know which side they were on if they had to they just <laughs> they just know that they want to be pet and walked and throw the ball and they'll bring it back that's, oh yeah uh, and occasionally eat ice cream it's doggy ice cream by the way in case anyone was concerned the cafe in the park sells doggy ice cream <laughs> so stress relieving that's uh that's probably why animals are are with us i think uh, i think they're here to kind of help us out they, uh, they definitely yeah. allow us to just kind of project onto them a little bit and they just they just soak it up they're just like yeah that's that's a concern uh what were you doing with the animal shelter in in phoenix you were um, i was i was volunteer dog walking for them um it was uh, that was quite hard as well to i think you know when we were constantly on the road a lot of charities and a lot of organizations like that which i fully understand if you want to volunteer for them they need to know that you're reliable and so a lot of them will sort of say oh we need you to commit to doing six hours over the course of a month which isn't very much to commit to. But when you know you're going to be on tour for two or three months at a time and then stay home for a month, 
it's really hard to approach places and say, hey, when I'm home, I will literally give you my time every single day, but then I'm going to disappear for three months. The way that most animal shelters and animal charities and other charities are set up, that doesn't work for them. So there was quite a number of places that I spoke to and approached before I found somewhere that actually was was willing to sort of do, you know, uh, sort of en enroll me, I guess, into their volunteer system. But I managed to find this amazing little shelter uh, called Forever Loved Pet Sanctuary, um, just sort of in North Scottsdale. And they uh, specifically look after senior dogs and they have a whole team of people who do the regular daily feedings and so forth. But then because the dogs are all in the shelter, well, some are in foster, but the ones that are in the shelter, they just want people to go in every day and hang out. And they have a list of suggested activities and they say, oh, you could come in and just you could play or you can come bring a book and come and read to the dogs. Or if you want, put their harnesses on and take them for a walk around the block. Um, and so I started doing that. And then once I kind of got to know everybody and the way that they ran, um, me and Dan would take uh, some of the dogs out sort of as a doggy daycare kind of thing. Uh, we took a couple of them to our condo so they could get a change of scenery. Uh, we took them out um, to go on little hikes and stuff um, just to get them, you know, a different environment for them, but also to get to know them better because that then helps the shelter in terms of rehoming them because they can send pictures and they can say, yes, they're really well behaved in our home environment. They're really happy out on a walk. They're happy in the car. And so by sort of, I guess, trialing those those ideas with a, a dog in a shelter, uh, you offer so much more information to help them get adopted. So, yeah, that's what we were doing out with them. And it, it was it was brilliant and a really lovely way to meet people in a new town as well. So I've got friends that I made through the shelter that I am keeping in touch with and I'm making a point of staying in touch with everybody. So when we do get back, hopefully we can kind of pick up where we left off. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad that you were able to find somebody who would accept somebody with our schedule because I've tried similar things before and it just never works. I just, I can't even agree to take my kids to hockey every week because I, on, on a whim, I could have to be in Dubai tomorrow. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's that's great. hard. Yeah, so that, that was amazing. And, and you know, the timing of it, actually, in hindsight, was great because it was through my experience there as well. That that's really helped me to get a little bit of paid work here. So as I say, you know, all these things kind of weirdly lined up and, and happened for a reason that none of us saw coming. And that uh, that took you farther. You were actually advertising for a lot of the, the puppies as well, right? You, I, If I remember looking at your Facebook, you were actually doing your very best to find them their forever homes and everything. Um, yeah, I've kind of been doing that a little bit uh, more in, in Liverpool. There's a rescue here that um, one of my very close friends is, is heavily involved with. And so she sort of like pulled me into that and gone, come on, I'm going up to do this today. Come and come and join us. Um, and they're very active on their social media here um, because I do have a lot of, you know, social media friends, if that's the right word, connections here in Liverpool. I do make a point of, of reposting and sharing things where I think it will help. Um, which is actually how my last foster rabbit got adopted as well. It just happened to be someone that I was friends with on Facebook who saw the post and kind of went, that's exactly what we're looking for. And so uh, they, they rehomed our last foster rabbit, which is brilliant because we still get updates and photos and stuff of, of what he's up to. So that worked out Aww. really well. Yeah, we miss him. He was a good boy, but uh, he's, he's in a very, very good home. <laughs> 
that is a wonderful silver lining of all of this. It's uh, those are the things that we, if we had all the time in the world, that's what we would go do anyway. I would imagine. Yeah, and, exactly uh, that. So that's been the real plus side is to be able to to do things like that, and we'd never have been able to do that while we were touring. Yeah, it's. Uh, I hate to call it semi-retirement because I don't want it to be forever. <laughs> I want it to yeah. just be temporary thing uh, i think like we had mentioned we we all thought this was just going to be a two week two month thing i don't think any of us foresaw that this was going to be a, what are we in eight months now we got to be i have months. stopped counting i realized for a while that i was i kept referring to the last six months and then there was a point when i was like sure it's been a lot more than that now and i just stopped counting <laughs> So let's talk about the, the some of the things that you did do. You said the the live stream with Frank Turner was that completely different for you? Was it, did that feel like a different world, or was it like a return to the same world? Um, it felt like a very different world until Frank yelled one, two, three, four, and we started a show, and I was straight back into like, here we go. This is what I do. This is what I know. Um, but until that point, it was strange. Partly because we were doing a gig in a bus mechanics yard. So that was unusual. Um, obviously no audience there uh, and many other considerations, mainly cameras and camera placement and uh, key lighting for cameras specifically without having to consider an audience. Uh, designing a show with multiple uh, focal points um, is very, very interesting. And I think where previous software massively came in use you know, we are used to looking at shows as much as, you know, we do we do things in the round um, and we appreciate that not everyone's stood on a riser in the centre of the room looking at the, the gig. But generally, we design shows that we're looking at straight on. Um, so to right. then design right. something and consider things like fixture placement based entirely around what well, we had five cameras, six cameras six cameras and you're suddenly thinking well actually i don't need to think of the bigger picture i need to think of these six viewpoints um so that was really interesting to design for and you know different but i i really enjoyed that element of it i would imagine that you had to wear multiple hats because i mean they're, i would imagine they're trying to keep as few people in the bus depot as possible did you have to become dp and programmer and designer all at once well i actually used the opportunity to retrain as my set design uh, career um <laughs> so, uh, got much more involved i mean with frank i'm kind of the, i'm the production designer so i always have an input into things like what's on the stage um how the risers are placed riser skirts what we're using um what amps we're using to a point uh and the layout of everything yeah, whereas on this occasion, uh, we didn't want to put a backdrop. Um, I've actually stubbornly refused to put up a backdrop. Um, we went down the route of going, you know what? We're not going to make this look like a venue and we're not going to make this look like a TV studio setup. So let's embrace what it is. Um, so I guess I saw myself, I was set dresser, definitely. Uh, we had clear uh, Perspex screens, which I commissioned some... Um, Frank Turner logos on vinyl, which me and the production manager between us uh, stuck onto these screens that were between the band. Uh, just for the record, it's really, really hard putting um, temporary vinyl adhesive shapes onto plexiglass screens. Uh, not something I wish I recommend or wish to repeat. It looked great, but it was a nightmare. And then they all came off in about 
10 seconds and we pulled them off. I was like, that took about five hours to put all that <laughs> And it was, then it was gone. Um, so yeah, no, there was definitely multiple hats going on. And then we had a chap called Graham Kay who owns a outside broadcast truck and he also owns the cameras. Um, but, you know, he pointed out, he's like, I'm an audio guy. I just happened to have some cameras. So that was very much a, a joint effort between us to look at camera placement um, and camera settings to get the, get the get the maximum that we could out of what was a very basic setup. But I think we did it. I was pretty pleased with how it turned out. I can't imagine <laughs> pulling stuff like that together these days is easy. I would imagine you have to really work hard to get all the people to line up and all the gear to be available at the same time and I mean, even though all the gear in the world is just sitting in a warehouse somewhere, now you have to get somebody back into the warehouse to get the gear, to yep. put it on a truck. Absolutely, yeah. We had to get the Christie warehouse opened just to go, you know, pick up our, our floor package, basically, and, and drop it off again. We had to get someone there to do it, which is a very, very strange experience. Um, part of the reason of what enabled Frank to do that show um, is the fact that the bus company it's fans for bands uh, which is owned by his bass player um, and they also use it as a rehearsal space and a lockup so all the gear was already in situ um, it was in oxford which is where three of the band uh, lived so that made that a lot easier in terms of transportation movement of people um i i think you know there's a lot of people sort of asking afterwards why aren't all bands doing this but even to do it in the most simplistic sense i think it's just cost prohibitive for a majority of you know smaller bands and, and bigger bands as well you know and the, i think the bigger you are as a band the more people then expect even though it's a live stream mm -hmm. on the current restrictions so yeah it, it was just a certain series of events that meant that frank was able to do this which we were very very fortunate for because as you say there's still logistical issues with getting people to the same place we had the advantage that we have an entire fleet of tour buses there so we could put two people on a bus like nobody else would be able to do that so yeah we were just very lucky on top of the logistical factors there's also the motivational factors like you have to get frank to want to go to a bus depot to sing in front of a bunch of cameras that aren't going to clap they're what? not going to give him any feedback. Loves to play, though. Um, and he had already been doing uh, a lot of solo live streams from his house. He'd been doing weekly ones. So this, I think, for him, actually, it was exciting to go and do that because rather than playing in front of his wife and cats, which was great, and he had a really good audience for a lot of them, actually, for him, rather than seeing this as like, mm, well, this is not a gig, this is weird, it was like brilliant we're getting the band together we're gonna see some of our roadies there's gonna be flashing lights you know it was actually a step up in terms of excitement from what he'd been doing so yeah maybe that's just the timing of that helped sort of helps with that but uh no he was so on board you know it's him that instigated it it's very much driven by him which is great that is uh that is motivation enough if, if he if he's excited then it, it, i can only imagine it's going to be infectious through everybody that's a terrible use of the word infectious but <laughs> uh yeah that sounds it sounds almost sustainable i i would imagine if he wanted to keep doing that that's kind of it's a whole nother sort of conversation i guess in terms of whether or not it's, it's sustainable that was one that we did as a paid uh, ticketed events i think there's an element of uh, novelty value for people 
um and that they'll pay for that once i do you couldn't do it weekly equally because I, I think that would be too risky too disruptive to people to be going backwards and forwards it worked really really well that one time we may well do it again we will see what happens i feel the same way about the drive-ins i, I see the novelty i would totally pay to go see metallica from the from the comfort of my own car once I yeah and I, w- I would pay top dollar for it or uh there's a bunch of these new drive into experiences where you know they'll do they'll transform an entire bus station into a movie set and you can drive into it mm-hmm. and, and you know I, that's something i would pay for once yeah i would that isn't really happening here i think because uh, we just don't have that sort of space we don't have this sort yeah. of you know open spaces that were big enough or hangar spaces that are big enough you know everything's just not on the same scale in the uk no. um but i can see how that would that would work in north america for sure yeah i think you guys have had all the time in the world to just take up all the space that's left in the uk <laughs> yeah I, think, uh, I don't know i've managed to find a lot of a lot more green space in around the northwest of england than i ever knew existed so that's reassuring yeah. we haven't built on all of it yet but um yeah not a lot of uh, clear space for doing drive-through things i don't think it's probably just rocky enough that nobody would ever think to build there anyway. <laughs> yeah, probably. Or uh, swampy, marshy enough and muddy enough, more likely. Yeah. Well, right on, Ali. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. For I'm really glad to hear that you're finding silver linings and you're finding little rays of sunshine. That makes me very happy and you know, it's very refreshing to hear. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, like everybody, there's some really dark times, and uh, you know, we could have done this chat on another day, and I think it would have been a, a very different conversation, maybe. Um, but right now, you know, I am. I'm all right, and as I say, I'm going to go, going to go walk my Labrador this afternoon, and um, it's reasonably sunny, and I'm probably going to cook something nice for dinner, and all of those things are enough to make it okay today. And I think that's important. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks. Thanks for chatting to me. It's been great.